Welcome to the Drill Down, the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson, and today is Tuesday, June 29. Well, just ahead, United places the biggest order for jets in the company's history, and yet it's the change in their business model that might be the biggest deal. Plus, a look at Facebook's victory lap over an antitrust threat. And we'll look at the future of contextual search with Yext CEO Howard Lerman. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And we hope you listen to the Drill Down every day. You can make that a lot easier by subscribing and clicking the follow button. You'll get to download every day's show and listen to it. We hope it's your daily look at the most important stories in business. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind stocks on the move. Joining me as always, executive producer, Isaac Webster. Isaac, tell me the three most important developments in the world of business today. Corey, let's get to it. Number one, a big story. U.S. home prices surging at their fastest pace in ever in April. In other words, home prices hit their highest level in more than 30 years. This is according to the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Index. Now, this index measures average home prices in major metropolitan areas across the nation, and it rose 14.6% in the year that ended in April. Home prices, as we've been talking about, have been surging this year due to low mortgage interest rates and a continued shortage of homes for sale. And many of those homes are getting multiple offers and selling above asking price. Yeah, a, a huge, I mean, just a record, as you mentioned, um, and that was on top of 13% the prior month. So yeah. the growth rate is, is you know, it's right up there with what we were seeing in 2005. Just fantastic, fantastic growth. Now, next story, we're watching a major story that developed last night. U.S. banks are going to start paying an extra $2 billion in quarterly dividends. Now, it's a signal that banks are looking to reward their shareholders after last year's pandemic-driven losses. It's also a sign that banks at the moment see few places to put their big profits other than back into the hands of their shareholders. It also reflects their sort of uh, the strength of their balance sheet because they were prohibited from doing so, uh, from issuing dividends and, and share buybacks um, earlier when they were looking for government help and the government did not want these banks to fail. But now it looks like they're getting a chance to stretch their wings a little bit because the government's signed off on the quality of their balance sheet. That's right. And the third uh, a business story that we're watching today, a company that we've been following and talking about and whose CEO will be a guest on the drill down in the coming month, Fastly, has tapped Fitbit CFO as its new chief financial officer. Uh, he will join the company in August. And earlier this month, as you may remember, Fastly was identified as the cause behind several of those major website outages in the news. But analysts have been praising how the company has responded quickly or should I say fastly to those outages? Fastly, really? Um, you get it? Yeah, Ron Kissling right was, was the CFO of Fit, but before it was acquired by um, Google. Right. Um, and they did, you know, they did a pretty good job of Fitbit in a business that has, you know, they were, they were lucky to sell that thing when they did because, you know, the, the, the fad of the Fitbit, it seems like it's been replaced a little bit by the uh, Apple Watch and other competitors. But uh, they've still held on to a little bit of that business and... Uh, Kissling taking that company as a public company, getting sold to uh, Google, and now on to Fastly, Vastly. 
bigger things. <laughs> I like what you did right there too. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, huge news day for United Airlines. Yes, it is. UAL shares fell just slightly today, but they're higher by 47% in a year. Tell us what's going on with United Airlines. Well, United held an investor event, a big event today called United Next. Uh, they had that this morning. They revealed a lot, a lot of stuff about their business. Now, the one that's making the headlines, not least of which uh, the headlines that we're going to talk about in a minute, but a huge order for new jets, 200 Boeing 737 MAX jets, 70 of the larger Airbus A321neos, and combined with other orders they've already gotten places, they've already announced, that means 500 new narrow-body planes to arrive in the next few years for Boeing. Now, 300 of those 500 new planes will be replacements. They're mothballing 300 older jets, including 200 smaller regional jets. So think about this. Newer jets, a lot newer jets, a lot more newer jets for uh, Boeing, but also the regional jets kind of disappearing. And they talked about a new approach for the airline. They're going to really focus on their hubs. They're going to focus on flying people from, say, Dallas to San Francisco or from uh, Chicago to Newark. You know, the places where they've got a lot of operations, they're going to stick to those hubs. Um, they're going to stop competing with the smaller regional places. They've looked at the product that Ryanair and Southwest are putting out there, and they've said, we don't compete with them very effectively. Customers don't like what we're offering them. They don't like the service. They don't like these little regional jets. We're getting rid of it. So they expect, interestingly, to stop competing on price. They really think if they can get to a really high-quality product and a high-quality customer experience, the customers will pay a little bit more for that uh, for a nicer flying experience. Listen to J. Scott Kirby, the CEO. We are deadly serious at United Airlines about getting customers to choose to fly United about creating an airline that people don't dread that portion of their travel, that people actually want to fly and look forward to the experience. And, and this aircraft order is a key part of that, getting rid of 200 small regional jets, which our customers dislike, uh, and replacing them with what are going to be the best airplanes, the signature interior uh, aircraft uh, with seatback entertainment at every seat, Wi-Fi, power ports, uh, the whole works that you'll hear more about today. Uh, but these are going to be the best airplanes flying. And you combine that with the customer service culture that's changing at United. Um, I mean, I really, we are, the bet we're making today, I get, I've got asked a couple of times, are you making a bet on business travel? The bet we're making today is not about business travel returning. Business travel is going to return. The bet we're making today is that customers care about the product and that we can decommoditize this industry uh, and get customers to choose to fly United Airlines because they like the product. Well, all I'm going to say as a frequent flyer, I'm not anymore, but I believe me, I put in some miles the last few years. It's hard to imagine the United Airlines experience being one you look forward to. That's, that's me talking. I loved to fly Virgin. JetBlue Mint, love it. Singapore Airlines, I'm there. United, for the longest time, as it seemed like their labor, labor troubles uh, and their constant cutbacks we're affecting the quality of the product, which is to say the planes, but also the experience that the, the, the uh, employees who were still there were ticked off that they were still there and they weren't enjoying having less support and they took it out of the customers. It was just an unpleasant experience. I, I can't say I have that much experience flying United. I've, you know, I've only flown United when it's convenient, um, but we'll see. I would love a nice, I would love a great experience. I will say their new terminal LAX is nice. Um, oh, I haven't been yet. Yeah, it's a good terminal. But I want to know, where are their hubs? I know it's Houston, correct? Chicago, um, I, 
San Francisco. So uh, San Francisco is uh, big for them. They yeah. talked about expanding in Newark, um, where they they, Newark? they haven't yep. had a lot of business there. Um, yep. Uh, and uh, let me, as, as memory strikes me, Houston, Denver, of course. How can I forget Denver? The massive thing at Denver. Um, and L.A., of course, um, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C., Dulles, where I also was this weekend. Yeah, I've done that L.A. to Dulles flight before. It was, well, the flight I was on was pretty miserable. But, yeah, hey, this would be great. I We welcome a better experience. So awesome. Interesting also that they think that there's consumer willingness and business travel willingness to pay a little bit more for a better experience. That hasn't always been the case. It seems like it's been a fight to the bottom when it comes to the customer experience in airlines. These guys showing that they've got a, a taste for trying something different. Well, we'll see how it works. Corey, what is your next drill down? Well, you know, this isn't quite a themed show, but Let's look at Boeing. <laughs> okay, I wonder why. BA uh, shares fell over uh, 1.5% today, but they've gained 21% over the past 12 months. Talk to us about Boeing and this deal with United Airlines. In a market that's up 40% year over year, just about a 21% gain shows the stock's really underperformed because the business has had a really miserable time with it, uh, with planes yeah. that, that have been grounded because of uh, safety problems. Um, and obviously the entire industry has been grounded, not in growth mode. That changing a little bit with United announcement, uh, again, 200 Boeing 737 maxes, uh, that's a big deal. Yeah. Now, how much does a 737 cost? Um, a cool 90 million, depending on what kind of extras you want on it. Oh, it's just pocket change. Figure 90 huh? million. So, you know, a, an order of 200 planes is an $18 billion order. It's the kind of thing that moves the needle on GDP in the U.S. It's really, I would argue, the most important um, single uh, thing that can happen for our GDP in terms of uh, uh, just corporate actions. And that is a big airline making a big order in planes. That is all about GDP growth. It's really good news for Boeing's Retton Washington factory where the plane is manufactured. But this is an old, the 737 ain't nothing new. Right. They've been around for how long? A long time. The first 737-100 flew uh, in 1964. This plane right. obviously is a mo much more modern thing, but of the most basic size and shape of this thing and the way that it connects to the airports, indeed airports built so that they can roll out the right gate and everything to a si 737-sized plane means that this model has stuck around for you know, closing in in 60 years. Well, hold on though. Can I, let's back up for one second. If, if United is ordering 737s rather than the 777 or the 787, does that mean United doesn't like the newer jets? It's really about what fits the market and the size of the plane. The new okay. 737 is, isn't anything like the 737 from 1964, except for the basic measurements. The gotcha. engine's different. The, some of the materials are different. A lot of the materials are different. Um, I say some because it's not the carbon uh, fiber frame of the uh, of the triple seven, but still the, the Dreamliner. Um, but still, um, uh, the they've put a lot of money, a massive amount of money, uh, even throughout COVID, they continued to invest in that seven three seven platform, uh, as discussed by CFO Greg Smith in the last conference call. We've invested over sixty billion dollars over the last ten years, and that has all been in key technologies and programs, and and. Uh, all, all efforts are in, within our factory, within our supply. So we have not been short on investment by any means. And you saw even last year in the middle of the pandemic, 
we continue to make the appropriate investments in the right area of the business. And I'd say even in some cases, we've made more investment, like on the 737 line, in order to capture um, stability on the other end. Is It's ultimately going to be great for our company, but great for our industry and our partners. And I misspoke before when I said the seven, uh, triple seven, the 787 is the Dreamliner. That's the one of the carbon fiber frame and the wings that kind of bend back uh, as it flies. Uh, a beautiful thing to see, but not as easy a thing to sell as the well-known size and shape of the 737 that is really the basis of United Airlines fleet and will be for a long time to come. Corey, what is your next drill down? Well, I want to look at Facebook a little bit. We talked about it yesterday when the news crossed that Facebook uh, had dodged uh, their Federal Trade Commission uh, suit in 46 states as well, suing them. But I want to take a little bit deeper look at that anti-monopoly or the monopoly versus antitrust case. Facebook trades under FB, of course. Shares fell just over 1% today, but they are higher by 59% in a year. So vastly outperforming the market. Um, uh, And to be clear, I'm long Facebook, so, you know, that's in my portfolio. I want everyone to know that I'm uh, biased whether I want to be or not, how bias works. But I thought that that was really interesting what the judge in this case had to say about why this thing was tossed, this this, this suit uh, by the FTC and 46 states. Now, what do you think the FTC and, 40, and the 46 states get wrong in their antitrust suit against Facebook? But the real problem here is that antitrust law seems to really be, and this is what the judge talked about in the order, was that antitrust law really is based on the notion of profits and charging for a product, right? And so the 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 judge said, you know, a free product, you can't say they're holding prices down or they're maintaining their price through a monopolistic behavior because they don't charge anything for the product. Now, uh, you know, and the, and the judge said just because it's rumored to be a, a, that a monopoly and it's commonly believed to be a monopoly, because 60% of social media activity is on Facebook or Facebook-owned products, that doesn't actually make it a monopoly uh, to the strict legal sense of the term. And indeed, by not charging for the product, the company may dodge that, that legal problem. However, I think it really shows that the law hasn't caught up with the business model of, of advertising-based stuff, let alone free advertising-based stuff. We haven't had that in our history as a, as a nation. And yet the law hasn't caught up with that. There is all sorts of discussion um, in Capitol Hill about what might uh, what it might look like in the future to have different kinds of antitrust laws. But there's a long way to go before that can happen. Now, the state's cases were tossed. The FTC can rewrite the complaint and refile the complaint. They've got an option to do that. And one might expect, given what we've heard from the new head of the FTC, that they will. But I was reminded, Isaac, do you remember this? When uh, Mark Zuckerberg in 2018, April of 2018, was testifying um, uh, on the Capitol, Orrin Hatch was asking about the business model, and Orrin Hatch seemed uh, stumped, and Mark Zuckerberg seemed amused when asked about that, that model of free. Mr. Zuckerberg, I remember well your first visit to Capitol Hill back in 2010. You spoke to the Senate Republican High Tech Task Force, which I chair, you said back then that Facebook would always be free. Is that still your objective? Senator, yes. There will always be a version of Facebook that is free. It is our mission to try to help connect everyone around the world and to bring the world closer together. In order to do that, we believe that we need to offer a service that everyone can afford 
and we're committed to doing that. Well, if so, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. I see. That's great. That's great. Yeah, it has been great for Facebook. Um, you know, it was it was it was an interesting way for them to to um, uh, address this issue. But I think the bigger issues here is what they really realize by being free, they can have bigger influence, and by being free, they can um, uh, free is is sort of the ultimate price competitive competition, right? Who can compete yeah. if if the if your competitors got a monopoly and is is free? Well, that's not the way the law is written. And one might expect that that it will be at least the way the new draft, if there is a new draft coming from the FTC in this suit, will also be written. That was a fun day in the newsroom. <laughs> the day that news broke when when it was just so revealed that the congressman didn't, in all respect, understand Senator how the business worked. Orrin Hatch, yes. Oh. Uh, he's no longer in the Senate. Isaac, I think we should replay that bite. And I'll add some crickets, you know, because there was that moment of silence I don't know how well yeah, that works that'd on be podcast. Cool. And we're committed to doing that. Well, if so, yeah, let's try this. a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. I see. That's great. New uh, and improved. <laughs> Edited bites from the U.S. Senate. Thank you very much. I love it. All right. Well, yes. coming up next, really interesting company, important growing company in Yext contextualized search coming to you. You're already using it. You're going to want to hear from CEO Howard Lerman. But first. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at Drill Down Pod. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down. Our guest, Yext CEO, Howard Lerman, joins us. Uh, Howard, glad to have you on the show. Um, what is Yext? How does Yext uh, do business and make money? Yex is an AI search company that brings natural language search to enterprises where software is a service model and we sell our AI search products and solutions to businesses around the world. Now, uh, one uh, might have called this years ago a listings business. And, you know, and I, don't know, I don't know if you take umbrage to that or not. Uh, I don't mean it as an insult, uh, but it, it's a, a, a step down from AI. Um what was the listings business that you were in traditionally? And because well, I want to move sort of forward and talk about your answers business, but what was your listings business initially? If you go back in time and search 20 years ago, when you'd run a search, you would type in a keyword and Google would send you blue links. And that's keyword search, which is based on index. Think Yahoo 1998, right. think Google 1998. Today, well, let's let's talk a- about how Yahoo did that, right? The, uh, David Philo, uh, uh, and Jerry Jerry Yang at, at, as Stanford, I think they were undergrad students, grad students. They, grad. they they literally were copying and pasting, but that hell that was probably a challenge and creating a database of things to look for. And then they hired some kids to type in the keywords. So when you do a search, those listings would come up, and that was the first, well, not the first search engine, but that was Yahoo and the business that Yahoo became. Google just kind of automated it, but it was the same basic idea, right? 
That's right. And today when you run a search, it's not keyword based and it's not link based. When you ask Google a question like how many calories are in a Big Mac or show me the nearest McDonald's, they tell you the answer. You get maps back. That is fundamentally based on a technology called natural language processing, which uses a, a underpinning called knowledge graph. And a knowledge graph is a brain like database that contains facts about the world and how it's related. Google pioneered this concept. That's how they give you that answer when you're looking for a question. And one of the answers that they need to give all the time is information about locations. They need to know where McDonald's are, when they're open, what the delivery options are, what menu items exist. And so the first foundation product we built was a listings product off of a knowledge graph. And we essentially, for every enterprise we worked with, helped create their own knowledge graph and then gave all those facts to Google and Alexa and Siri and everywhere else where people were looking so that when you ask Alexa or you ask Apple where the nearest McDonald's is, you're going to get the right answer from the source itself, McDonald's. A couple of years ago, we realized, gosh, we have knowledge graphs for thousands of the world's biggest companies. Why not take that next level and actually offer them the ability to answer questions themselves? Well, so that's where our answers about to come from. I'm going to pull you back in time and unpack the first part, and then I want to get to the second part. So, so, so back. So, so you get hired by a company. You use the example of McDonald's. I don't know if that was an actual client of yours. Maybe use an actual client that you've talked about. Well, McDonald's is an actual client. Morgan Stanley would be another one we could okay. talk about. So Morgan Stanley yep. hires you and says, "Can you create the keywords for us? Here's all of our data. Here's our what? Here's our offices. Here's the names of our mutual funds, and so on." That's exactly right. A knowledge graph is a schema that contains sort of all the different types of entities that an organization would have. So in the case of a financial services powerhouse, you might have wealth managers, you might have fund names, and these are all organized in a certain way. And then they're filled in in a knowledge graph. It doesn't do you any good if you can understand a question if you don't know what the answer is. And so our first sort of platform that we launched to the world with, our listings product, was fundamentally based on a knowledge graph. We helped companies organize their location information in a knowledge graph and supply that to Google and Alexa and Bing and Siri and Facebook and Instagram. And around the world, we'd put information about locations in there. As we've expanded, companies began to add additional entities to their knowledge graph that were not location-based. Things like products and people and other types of answers, FAQs, knowledge base, help site articles. And so what became obvious was that we then, with all this knowledge in our in our systems in a structured way, we could help customers then be able to answer questions directly with their own search. So how is a knowledge graph different than a database? Higher level. It's a higher level item. So, you know, if you think of a database, database, you can query it, you can type in, you can create different types of tables, you can link them together. It might be a relational database. A knowledge graph the best way to think of it, and you can see this in Google. If you go into Google and you type, what year was Marco Polo born? They're going to just pull up the answer, and they're going to say, Marco Polo, date of birth. And they're going to say, you know, I don't know what it is, 1251, January 16th. That is being retrieved from their database. And here's what's going on beneath the scenes. They're taking that query, what year was Marco Polo born? And they're breaking it up into intents. And they're using natural language processing to say, ah, you were looking for a person, Marco Polo, and you were looking for his date of birth, which we then go into our knowledge graph and it builds a structured query and gets it back out and it presents you with the exact answer. Now contrast so it's that. Sort of, 
it, it figures out the, the, the way to present the context based on the context of the question itself. I think that's a way of looking at it. You know, what it does is it takes the question and it finds what the important intents are. You might say, for example, when is Dreamforce this year? And they'll say, ah, Dreamforce. That's a Salesforce event and that has a start time. And so you're essentially building a query, a structured query from a natural language question. And it uses a, generally speaking, a technology or an algorithm called named entity recognition to do that. So did the listings business serve that information to Google saying, we're going to structure, we're going to give you all the answers that you might be asked anyway, in the way that you want them. So you can just, you know, bolt on this, this, our knowledge graph to your knowledge graph. So your knowledge graph gets bigger, but our customers get their information featured the way they want it to be featured. Corey, that is exactly right. We built every company that used us a knowledge graph. We gave that knowledge and that knowledge graph, the structure of it, we mirrored the Google knowledge graph that we could give it to Google so that it showed up in Google. And in doing so, we built a enormous set of facts from many thousands of companies around the world. And having the knowledge is actually equally as important to being able to answer a question as having the algorithm to do it. And it's in fact a harder starting point because you can't tell me where the nearest McDonald's is or whether a Krispy Kreme donut is gluten-free unless you have that fact in a database in a structured way. Now I have a whole different question about donuts, but um, uh, so so I don't know really a donut. And you used um, use the word whole, and there we go. Um, so um, uh, so all right. So you end up with this giant pile of knowledge, uh, initially intended to serve it out to the places where searches were happening. That's your yeah. listings business. Um, Correct. Then you come up with the answers business, which essentially is doing the same thing that Google's doing, right? You know. We like to look at it in the way that there's one search platform or one answers platform that can handle your off-prem search in Google and Alexa and Siri and your on-prem search on your own website and your own customer support site internally in the workplace. If you have agents taking calls from customers, everyone can see the same answers from one single knowledge graph, whether the user is in Google on your own site or behind the firewall. Do you think you found over time that the listings business wasn't as big as it looked initially because of the shifts going on? You know, every time Google shifts, it has these dramatic, in their technology, there's these uh, these uh, cascade of effects to other companies that have been supplying information to Google and the way that Google, they rank in Google searches is, is kind of a different but similar thing. Do you think you, as Google started to evolve, the listings business didn't turn out to be as big as you maybe thought of the, at the start? Well, Corey, you know, there's no question our listings business last year was hit by COVID-19. We had an amazing Q4 going in to 2020, fiscal 2022 or fiscal right, 21. So, yeah. so a year a year ago, we had a great Q4, then the pandemic hit. Google Maps views year over year. We said this on our Q4 earnings call. We're down more than 50%, 5-0. That's, wow. that's an enormous headwind. I don't believe anybody thinks that that's going to be a permanent situation as the world reopens and we're seeing reopenings happening, you know, faster and faster. There's no reason to believe that our listings business wouldn't see recovery. I haven't seen anything that suggests that it wasn't what we thought it was 15 months ago, except we encountered a headwind. Interesting. So, all right. So you add on the answers business, what is the answers business and how does it differ from, so is the answers business really supplying that experience for your customers on their websites? that uh, the, 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 the general user might have found it when they went to Google? You've, we've all seen that magnifying glass on a, on a website 
or on a help site, a customer, you know, go to help.something.com and you see that magnifying glass, you can type in a search. Most of those searches you see today look like Google in 1998, look like Yahoo in 1995. They're all keyword based. So whereas- And you can't consumer, find the stuff you're looking for. Can't find the stuff you're looking for. But so now uh, you've got something different. Whereas consumer search has evolved with natural language processing to give you that answer, most corporate search is still stuck in the 90s, in 1999. And answers brings natural language search to consumers, essentially giving to, to enterprises, essentially giving every company their own Google, a Google-like experience on their own site. That's the idea. So that when you search on KrispyKreme.com for a location, you get maps back. You don't get 10 blue links. When you search for a donut, you see the menu items and you can get details about it and get it. When you go to a healthcare site and search for a doctor's name that accepts a certain insurance, that speaks a certain language, you get a natural language answer, bam, there's your result. You can ask specific questions and get answers, support answers, instead of getting 10 blue links back on a page. Corporate search is stuck in the 90s and Yext is modernizing that by bringing AI-powered search to the enterprise. Right. Well, that's the consumer experience, right? You have this great experience on Google because you can find what you want. And right. then you go to somebody else's site. It's still the same browser. It's still the same computer. You're still the same user, but you can't find the stuff you want. I get the desire there. But, you know, uh, you you mentioned Marco Polo born <laughs> in Venice. Rome was not built in a day. Neither was Google. <laughs> Google was not built in a day. Google was built with an enormous amount of programming uh, and increasingly AI to figure out what people are going to look for before they look for it. Um, have you, you've engaged in that same thing. That isn't easy. Hiring those people isn't easy to who can, who can come up with that AI and then getting to those developments isn't easy. Talk about that journey. You know, one of the things I've learned with R and D Corey is that there are certain people who are 10 or 100 X normal people, <laughs> aliens, I call them or 10 Xers, whatever you want to call them. You know them when you see them. And it does not take a village to create a breakthrough. And so we've always focused on a small group of extraordinary folks, innovators. You know, you'd be, for example, it'd be funny to see how many people kind of worked on the core prototype of the iPhone. I think it might be smaller than you would think. Now to scale it, to scale it, that is an enormous operation. And to build an ecosystem, a platform around it, that's where you need, you know, tons and tons of people. But these original kind of prototypes that make something go don't require uh, masses of people, but it requires quality of people. And that's where we really focused on building our, our breakthrough. But the critical thing in building a search experience that's AI powered is that we started with 10 years of structured knowledge that we'd built up. That was our original ability to get going. And five quarters in, you know, I think we said, that we have more than 250 enterprise customers using our AI search product in just five quarters. That's really some strong momentum. We're very excited about it. It, it does seem also that you may have had an, uh, an advantage just because you knew how to structure the data to hand it over to Google, Siri, uh, you know, use it on Instagram, Facebook, whatever. When you see how they want that data, you can figure out maybe how to best uh, structure your own newly designed uh, AI product and search product. That's right. Exactly right. So as you grow it going forward, have, have there been sort of certain moments where you saw certain breakthroughs happen? Well, you know, if I were to look back in my 15-year entrepreneurial journey, 
there are, I would say, arcs. There are acts. It's like a, a play, act one, act two. And I think we've entered our third act here with AI-powered search. At yeah, least you was, didn't use innings, which I'm over at this point, having covered technology for well, you, a couple you, decades. Yeah, that, plus the, <laughs> that, that plus the spider tack. I mean, there's too much spin in the ball this year. Yes, yes. Spin. Didn't the ball spin before this year? Now we're talking Baseball. like a PR, a PR firm. Baseball, I digress. Um, so you talked in your conference call it was, uh, in the most recent quarter, which I thought was super interesting about how um, because of the way this AI search product can work, that while a customer is typing a query, the answer can appear so they don't end up on the phone, so they don't end up with a longer kind of wait time or more questions coming up, and that the knowledge kind of builds on itself. And I thought that was a really interesting um, example of what you guys uh, do and whom you do it for. You know, there's no question that as digital transformation explodes and has exploded over the past year, you can't walk into a store and get answers anymore. So everyone turns to digital channels. And what that's caused is support teams at companies to get crushed with tickets. The number of tickets that are flying through support systems like Zendesk or Salesforce Service Cloud has you know, doubled or tripled during the pandemic because everyone is expecting a digital answer. And for any company, for anybody who runs customer support or customer experience, a critical metric that they are judged by and attempt to optimize for is the reduction of cases, the reduction of tickets. So one of the techniques you can do is you can put our search box or answers bar next to, as the customer is typing in a support ticket, use NLP to watch what they're typing, suggest answers. And if you can deflect that, you've not only reduced a support call or ticket, you've also increased customer satisfaction because they don't have to wait. Interesting stuff. Let me ask you lastly, what do your customers typically look like? What are the businesses? Because I've noticed you you had a concentration of uh, of a certain, you know, top five customers were yeah. a, a, a big chunk of your business or a, a meaningful part of your business. That's smaller now. I wonder if the type of customers you have is changing. Well, that's a great insight. You know, if you looked a year ago, we had Thank higher you. concentration. Thank you very much. That's my job. <laughs> No, I'm sorry. I, I got to pat myself on the back. There's no one else here to do it. <laughs> we had a year ago, uh, you know, heavier concentration in retail and food services and, you know, hospitality. These industries were really challenged during COVID. So, you know, what we said was, all right, let's take some of the folks that are calling on those guys and then reshift the energy to more up and coming industries that need to buy AI-powered search companies or organizations like uh, tech in the, the tech vertical, for example, um, that's been a, the government vertical, the higher education vertical. So you know we have sh seen a vertical shift. But if you were to look at you know our top customers, just all in, you're going to see financial services is a top category for Yext. Healthcare is a top category for Yext. Tech is a is a great category for Yext. We can now sell to anyone. We talked on our earnings call about two support answers wins in the quarter, Altice and Samsung. And we'll be powering the AI answers on both of those companies' support sites, which is very exciting. And Samsung in five languages, by the way. Interesting stuff. Um, yeah, I was warned not to sound like I had a German accent when I came to talk to you. <laughs> because I might speak German back? Perhaps. Um, uh, no need to do that. Yex CEO Howard Lerman, thank you very much for your time. We do appreciate it. Uh, fascinating company in Yext. 
Well, up next on the drill down, the bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We mentioned the concentration of the top five customers at Yexto three years ago was 14%. I didn't mention that part, but how low has that number come now from 14% top five customers? We'll have that number when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, Pandora, you name it. But hit the subscribe button so you catch every show every day. Download the show. Heck, you could even leave a review. I wouldn't be mad. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. The number is not the year of the birth of Marco Polo. That was 1254. No, it is about the growth rate at Yext, or really the growth in the number of customers <laughs> at Yext. Uh, three years ago, Yext had 14% of its customers, top five customers were 14% of revenues. That number is now down to 9%, Isaac. It really suggests that they are peppering their business with lots more customers uh, so that they don't have to rely on those top five reducing the risk, but I think also showing the adoption of the product. That's a good sign. Absolutely. Well, thanks for listening to us here at The Drill Down. We do appreciate your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.